0: Good Boys and Girls Two-Footed Podcast on Thursday, October 14th, brought to you by eplindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider that's a virtual privacy network which allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geoblocked from, while keeping your data safe. Check out libertyshield.com, use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. There are hardware and software packages There's also a 48-hour free trial. Well worth your time giving that a go. LibertyShield.com We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk And finally, do remember to check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. Just download that Etsy app onto your phone and search EPL index or Anfield index. If for some reason you don't like Etsy, there's something wrong with you. You can just go and search their websites. They're easy to find. Lots of good merch there. Lots of Chelsea, City, Spurs, Liverpool, whatever you want, Manchester United. They're all there. Check those out when you get a chance. Folks, we begin today on a sombre note. Um, Terrible news yesterday out of Bournemouth. David Brooks, who is a fantastic young player, has been diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. He was away with the Welsh national team, and some tests brought up some red flags. He immediately went and got further tests done, and he he has come out and said that he has uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, stage 2. He has been given a positive prognosis by his doctors. And he will begin treatment next week. So we all, I'm sure, want to send our very best wishes to David Brooks, who is just a wonderful, wonderful player, and by all accounts, an outstanding young man. So fingers crossed, he makes the full recovery and can get back to normal life as soon as possible. Football takes a back the back seat in this one. This is just about his health. Uh, so, yeah, pulling for, for David Brooks. Um, it is questions day, folks. So we have quite a few. And we will jump into them straight away. This one is from uh, Keepy Uppy. Um, if you have to assemble a team from four different nationalities, what would you go for? It has to be one nationality for goalkeeper, one for defence, one for midfield, and one for attack. You're free to pick your own formation. So in goal you've got I think you've got two options here you could go Brazil and you get Alisson and Ederson or you could go Slovenia and get Jan Oblak and then pull Handanovic back out of retirement or international retirement and have him I think I'd go for Brazil because though I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of Ederson he is a good goalkeeper. He's not a great goalkeeper, but he is a good one. I think he's better than Handanovic at this point, and I don't think the gap between All Black and Allison is all that big at all. Allison is a more rounded goalkeeper. All is a better traditional goalkeeper, shot stopper, etc. So, and with the style of football you'd want to implement, I think I would go. I think I would go for Brazil. In defence, I'm going to play a back three. And I think I'll go with the Dutch here. So I can have Delict, De Vries and Van Dijk. Not a whole lot of depth. France would be the obvious choice if you wanted a lot of depth. They've got loads of good centre-backs. They're, they're coming out their ears at this point. So you could very well go France. But I, I want France somewhere else. So I think I'll go with the Dutch. I got the best centre-back in the world in Van Dyke. The best young centre-back in the world in DeLict. And in Stefan de Vries, you get a very, very good centre-back who's well-suited to playing in a three. So I'm happy with that. Like I said, depth isn't tremendous. Um, you've got Nathan Aki, who he's good. He's not great. Uh, Urien Timber, who I do quite like. I think he's got uh, a pretty bright future. I can play daily Blind in my back three as well. So I'm happy enough to go with, with the Dutch here. I can go Joel Veltman, um, Sven Botman. Actually, Botman would probably be De-, De Ligt, Van Dijk, Botman for balance. De Vries, my fourth centre-back. And then I've even got uh, Jerry St. So And Per I will go with the Dutch in defence. In midfield, I'm going to go England. Playing four across the middle. I've got Trent at right wing back, right midfield. Bakayo Saka at left wing back, left midfield. At right wing back, I can also have Max Aaron's Trippier if I wanted him. And for now, Tariq Lamptey, though. I, 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 I assume he will choose to play for Ghana with the amount of players ahead of him. I think that's what he will do. But loads of options there. On the left, I can play Luke Shaw there. I can play Ben Chilwell there. I can play Ryan on there. So very, very happy with my wide midfield options. Um, in central midfield, I get Bellingham, Rice or Phillips, both good players. I've also got the option of playing... A three-man midfield, if I want to go a five across the middle, I can play Foden there, I can play Smith-Rowe in that position. So I do like the options that England have. I think Gareth, and Mason Mount, of course, who I didn't mention, is another very good player. So I do really like England's midfield options. I think it's, it's an area in which they have very few peers in terms of just the sheer volume across the board right wing back left wing back and in central midfield I'd feel very comfortable with any two of Bellingham Phillips they'd be my starters and then Rice and Mount I'd be very very confident in that and I'm going to go a step further I'm going to take an England number 10 as well I'm going to play Phil Foden as my number 10 so it's more of a A 3-4-1-2-3-5-2, whatever way you want to look at it. But if I've got Foden as my 10, I can play Mount there. I can play Grealish there. Smith-Rowe could play there. Curtis-Jones, if he develops correctly, can play there. Harvey Elliott, if he develops, can play there. So I really, really like the options that England are going to have in midfield. And my starters, like I say, Trent on one side, Saka on the other, Bellingham... Phillips and Foden I'm very very happy with that and up front I'm going to go for France I can have Mbappe and Benz- uh, and Benzema as my starting two I've got the likes of Griezmann Diaby Ben Yedder, Martial Coleman Ousmane Dembele Olivier Giroud Marcus Turam all players that I can call on there so I think France have great attacking options for this type of shape, especially the idea of playing Benzema and Mbappe. They've been really good together, I think, since um, Benzema was recalled to the French senior team. So I'd be very, very excited. I've also got the likes of Amin Gouri, uh, Amin Adli, Rayan uh, Cherky. There's a lot of really good young French attackers as well. So, yeah, I think that's what I would do. Brazilian goalkeepers... Dutch defenders, English midfielders, and French attackers. I'm sure other people will go other ways, but that's what I'm going to go with. I know it means I can't have Messi, but it is what it is. I'll, I'll take the chances that an 11 of Alisson Becker, Matthias De Ligt, Virgil van Dijk, Sven Botman, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Jude Bellingham, Calvin Phillips, Bakayo Saka, Phil Foden... Mbappe and Benzema can beat pretty much anybody. So, yeah, very, very happy with that selection. Okay, moving on. Uh, Raghav. Rajav, I've always pronounced his name wrong. He's told me before how to pronounce it, but I'm really sorry. Um, This is regarding the Newcastle takeover. Do you think the right to own a Premier League club should be based on some objective criteria on issues? such as racism, human rights, gender equality. Basically, we use reliable uh, indicators such as those from from Freedom House, the UN, etc. And if your weighted average is below the threshold, you're not eligible. Right now, the debate the debates are a bit hypocritical and subjective. If I use Freedom House as my source, Saudi Arabia has a terrible human rights score, seven out of 100, but Russia and UAE aren't much better. Protecting human rights can't be the only prerogative. Can't be the prerogative only of Newcastle fans who have seen the club starved of investment for more than a decade. Right. This is a really good question. Uh, The one thing I would say just in regards to Russia is Russia, Abramovich is different to City and and Newcastle because that's his personal wealth. Mansour and the PIF, that is the nation's wealth, really that they're spending. That's not their own money. That is the nation's wealth. Um, so I do think we should be looking at these things. And I, Look, the, the ownership test, the fit and proper ownership tests, they're a joke. They really are a joke. The Premier League one is better than the Football League one. The Football League one is a farce. I would say if there was a real stringent test done Probably about a quarter of the owners in the Championship, League One, and League Two would be immediately struck off. But I do think we do need to set higher standards. I personally don't like the idea of clubs owning football or of countries owning clubs. I really don't. Now I may well look a hypocrite in five years' time if the Chinese sovereign wealth fund come along and buy Liverpool and spend all the millions and all the billions, because they make the Saudis look poor. The Saudis have 500 billion in assets. The Chinese have 1.2 trillion. So, and you best believe I'll celebrate any leagues and Champions League's won. But I don't blame Newcastle fans at all. I don't expect Newcastle fans to take the moral high ground here. I do expect them to enjoy this. I expect them to be excited by this. Ashley's ownership was a disaster. The stadium has been left in a a state of neglect. By all accounts, the training ground is way outdated. Not in any way fit for purpose. There's been a distinct lack of investment in the first team. A distinct lack of investment in the academy. I mean, their best young academy player whose father's a Newcastle legend, left the club in the summer to join Liverpool. So I do feel like Newcastle fans should be allowed to enjoy this. And enjoy it with the knowledge that when your team wins things, you're going to be called plastic because that's just how things work. Manchester City were selling out Main Road when they were in the equivalent of what's now League One. Their fans are still referred to as Plastic. Newcastle is a fan base starved to success. I went through it the other day. They haven't won anything in 60 odd years. They've been badly treated by ownership. They've been pushed away from their own club. They're entitled to enjoy this. Now, some of them are getting a little bit carried away. I saw lads yesterday discussing plans for a new 80,000 seat stadium. You don't need an 80,000 seat stadium. I'm sorry to break it to you. You don't. Maybe in fifteen years you might, but I mean, your fan base is bigger than City's. That's that's absolutely fair. It's not that much bigger, and City can't sell out the Etihad, so you don't need eighty thousand. Sixty would probably do, and you could do that at St James's Park. You could extend St James's Park, modernise it, and you'd be fine. So you know, there's 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 areas to settle down in. But I do think it's on the rest of us, and not just us, but the other owners. It's on, it's on the Premier League. And I went through this the other day, and it, it really bothers me. The more I think of it, the, re- it re- the more it bothers me. What the Premier League have shown is that they don't care about human rights. They don't care about women's rights. They don't care about the murder of journalists. The only thing they care about is that their financial partners are not being shafted out of money. Because they can deny it all they want, but the fact is that the being sport, Saudi Arabian disagreement, controversy, whatever it was, got sorted. And within a couple of hours, we had reports that the Newcastle takeover was going to go through. That's how quickly that happened. And there is no way you can claim the two weren't linked. In all likelihood, what happened is the Premier League and the Saudis sat down after the intervention of the British government, I will add, who have refused to release the minutes of those meetings, but they sat down, and I would bet the Premier League just said, we'll tell you what, sort out this disagreement with being sport, make that right, pay them the money that they feel like you shaft them out of, And we will gladly let you into our game. The optics of it are dreadful. They really are dreadful. It shines such a bad light on the Premier League. If you'd said to them, look, hush, hush, wink, wink, get this done now. And in February, we will let you buy the club. We will let the deal go through. Mike Ashley would have been happy. He might have even spent some money in January knowing that he was going to get it back from the the Saudis and he could have gone out in a high. The Saudis would have come in then in February, had a few months to get things in order before the summer when they'll likely make massive changes and spend heavily on overrated and overpriced players because that's what they'll have to do initially to get players to Newcastle. But to do it so quickly is just dreadful. And you're right. I I do think it should be based on an objective criteria. I do think these issues should matter. But again, they'll only matter when it's a case of countries buying clubs. If Putin, for example, wanted to buy a club, well, he would have to be subject to it because you know, his money has been stolen from the hands of peasants. A lot of Abramovich's was as well, but he was never in a position of governmental power. Putin is basically the king of Russia. His title is just different. He doesn't wear a crown, but that man is there as long as he wants to be there. And whenever his term is running out, he just changes the rules that allow him to stay longer. So, look... It's it's inarguable that Roman the Abu Dhabi guys at City that they've been good for the league. They've made the league stronger. They've pumped a lot of money in you have to give the Mansurers credit for what they've done in Manchester. Not 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 City related, but not Manchester City related, but the city of Manchester related the regeneration, the money they've put in, the programmes they've established, that's all very, very good. But that is part and parcel of sports washing as well. You know, that is part of this. That is them doing things to get people on board. I'm sure the Saudis will do similar in Newcastle. And for the city of Newcastle, great. It is absolutely great. However, you would prefer... If these very rich Saudis and the very rich boys from Abu Dhabi would do more things for their own people, the people in their countries who are oppressed under dictatorships. And you can look at what Saudi Arabia, whatever way you want, it is a dictatorship. That family. Are going to be there as long as they want to be there unless someone forcibly removes them and the issue is there's so many of them that you never know you know we've seen in in some countries where there's been military intervention and they've handpicked a successor and he turns out to be a lunatic see you just don't know or he turns out to be someone who just hands back control to the people that were running things before So there's no real way to change things in Saudi Arabia and in Abu Dhabi other than those people who are already in power making changes, deciding to modernise the countries, deciding that equality is important. I love the question. I do. Thank you very much for that. And I hope that kind of answers it. I know I went off in different directions, but I hope that answers your question to some degree anyway. Uh James asks, let's say Newcastle offer 100 million in the summer for Mane and Firmino. Are you taking it? If not, what amount forces you to accept? It has to be a package deal. How would you spend the money? I would take it. I would take 100 million. Sadio Mane will have one year left in his contract. Bobby Firmino will have one year left in his contract. Sadio was good in the last two games. Other than that, has not played well since last October by a handful of games here and there. Firmino, recent games have been promising, but Bobby had back-to-back disappointing seasons. Even the title-winning season, Bobby wasn't particularly good. So I would take it. And my first port of call would be Leeds for Rafinha. And my second would be Brentford for Ivan Tony. Now, I know that would mean Rafinha playing on the left, but I think he's just as good on the left. I think he's just as effective. And he can play a multitude of roles, so I'd have no issue with with having him in the squad. They would be the two I'd look to bring in. I think they're straightforward deals, if you want to go for them. I think 60 million gets you Rafinha, 40 gets you Tony. You'd have to put add-ons in as well, but that's fine. Those are the two I would love to bring in Rafinha and Ivan Tony. Tony fits Liverpool so well. You look at his style of play and actually watch him closely. He's very similar to Raul Jimenez. Raul Jimenez is very similar to Bobby Firmino. There's a lot of crossover between Tony and Bobby. Now, he'd have to adapt to playing in a front three, but I don't think that would be a problem. And you see how well he links up with. Brian and Buomo, I think the same thing would happen with Salah. You could move them into a front two and play Rafinha off the right, Thiago and Fabinho in the centre midfield and look to bring in a new left winger with your existing budget. Who that would be, I don't know. I know that's adding three new players in attack, which is very unclocked, but the goalkeeper sorted, the defence is sorted, that midfield two is sorted. I think you can do it and not have massive disruption because, you know, you still have Jota there. He'll play a lot of games. Harvey Elliott will come in, play a number of games from the right, can probably play from the left as well, or he could play right and and um, Rafinha would play left. I'd be very interested in Rafinha off the right, Salah, Tony through the middle, and then... As a quirk for a left winger, I'd love someone like Dwight McNeil, just someone who is really good at crossing the ball, or Harvey Barnes, who I really, really like. You could, you can obviously look overseas, and you can obviously have higher expectations. You could say, right, with a hundred million, what I'm going to do is I'll go and I'll spend all hundred million of that on Federico Chiesa, and you bring him in as your out and out replacement. For, for Mane and then you spend whatever budget you have yourself on a, a young, cheaper striker like Adeyemi or somebody who might cost you 30, 35 million. You could look to maybe maybe go down the um, the, the Bosman route and maybe you look at bringing in Dybala on a, on a Bosman or Bellotti on a Bosman. Bellotti might be a risk, but you can play Jota through the middle and just have Bellotti as a backup. And then him and Chiesa can keep each other company when they don't really speak the language. One I do really like who is on a Bosman is Jeremy Boga. I really like him, and I'd be very interested in Liverpool making a move to bring him in, even as a backup, even just as a squad player. If Sadio does sign a new contract, you look at the Liverpool team, you look at that front group, Salah on the right, Jota hasn't played much on the right, but in terms of a pure goal scorer, he's the next best thing Liverpool have. So he could be the nominal backup there. You could go and buy yourself that striker, whatever money you have in the budget, taking Salah, taking Salah from off the table. Go and buy your Ivan Tony for 40000000 million. You're starting three... Are Salah, Tony, and Mane, which I think works. Your backup three then are Jota, Bobby, and Jeremy Boga. I think that would be a really good use of funds. And then you can play Harvey Barnes Harvey Elliott rather in that right-sided midfield role with Fabinho and Thiago. Curtis Jones can be Harvey's backup. Henderson can be Fabinho's and Nabi Keita can be Thiago's and then you've got two in each position the only need you'd have then is a backup right back to Trent I think in that situation you're going to go look for someone in the 18 to 20 range who's, who's got more of a midfielder's mind than a fullback's mind you want more of a midfielder who can play as a fullback or can play wide and you can convert them into that fullback role, you're probably only gonna get two, three years. If they're good enough, they'll develop, then they'll move on, and you just repeat the trick. But yeah, I mean to answer your question, I've gone on one of my tangents, but to answer your question, I think I would go Rafinha and Ivan Tony. Um right, moving on, moving on. Lugo is sharing graphs, which are Nice. Um, right, Adam Hamlin. Uh, questions for tomorrow. For some reason, Andrei Shevchenko getting the Newcastle job keeps crossing my mind. I'm not sure why, but it won't go away. Maybe because he's looking for a club job and his best friends with a billionaire owner in Abramovich. Um, Shevchenko's a decent manager, From what we've seen with the Ukraine, not an outstanding record, but he did well considering and he did develop a lot of good young players into that national team. They're certainly in a much better position now than they were when he took over. I don't know that you go for him, given he hasn't got any club experience. I don't know that you go for him right now, considering Newcastle are in a relegation battle. I think that would be a big, big risk. But I do think he'll be an interesting figure to keep an eye on over the next year or so, because I do think there'll be there will be a club that will take a chance on him. Now it may be that he ends up at, at Dinamo Kiev, where he played for years. Um, it may be that he goes to Italy, where he still has a home. But Shevchenko's a good manager. I, I don't really have um, any gripes with that. Um. He also asks who I think should be on the shortlist. So, myself and Guy discussed this on a tad predictable. Um, If Ranjic comes in as the football czar, then he's going to want someone that he trusts, someone that's been through the Red Bull school of coaching. The obvious one in the Premier League is obviously Ralph Hasenhutl. He would be... um, He would be an interesting appointment because he's obviously been in the Premier League already. He is in the Premier League now, I should say. And he's shown he's a good manager. Now, there's been times where it's been a struggle. It's obviously a bit of a struggle at the moment. But he is a good manager and he is someone that would be worth considering. The likes of Adi Hooter, Jesse Marsh, they've just moved clubs. They're not going to want to move again. But maybe Roger Smith, or Schmidt, he's doing a really impressive job at PSV Eindhoven. Uh, He was at Salzburg in 13-14. Had a really entertaining team. Um, He was actually there from 12 to 14, I should say. But he, he built a really entertaining team there that played a lot of good football. So he might be one who's worth considering but given the situation they're in it's it's kind of hard to overlook as a short term this year next year and maybe the year after it's hard to overlook Sean Dyche he I think he'd be 10 I know he just signed a new contract I, I know that but he's well used to relegation battles he's well used to getting the most of the players he is more than capable of getting a team into the top half, as he's shown twice. Would be would be worth consideration. I think if, if Cooper hadn't taken the Forest job, he would have been worth the look. Did great work at Swansea. Uh, Graham Potter has obviously done really well at the bottom half of the league with, with Brighton, and he's implemented a really good style of play. And if you wanted someone to come in, implement a style of play, Build a culture. I think he'd be a good one. I've seen Rogers linked. DiMarzio um, had a report. I don't put any stock in that nonsense. I don't know what Rogers would be like in a relegation battle. Because there's no evidence to suggest he'd be any good at it. Now, he was in a relegation battle actually at, at Watford. And they sacked him. Um, no, not Watford. Was it Reading? I think it was Reading that sacked him. He left Watford and went to Reading. Um And they sacked him, but he didn't get a chance to work his way out of it. So, I I think Rogers isn't the now manager. Rogers is the next guy. So, if we look at City, City took over, Mark Hughes was in charge. What Mark Hughes will do is he'll keep you in the league more often than not. Now, he's obviously had uh, somewhat of a relegation at Stoke. He, He did get sacked a couple of months before they got relegated, but he had put them in a position to get relegated. But generally, Mark Hughes will keep you in the division. He will get the most out of limited players. And he's someone that you can build build your club and just leave him in place, let him work, build the club around him and then go and get your good manager. And if I was Newcastle, I would look at Rodgers more as your Mancini rather than your Hughes, rather than as your first manager, Bring him in when you're a mid-table team. When you're established in 8th to 11th kind of place, then you bring in Rogers, and he's the guy that you look to propel you into the top four. You just have to hope that there's not big pressure games at the end of seasons because, you know, Brendan does Brendan things. But Rogers is that guy, I think, that would be the link between whoever the first guy is that you get in, and whoever your Guardiola is going to be. Now, I know City had Pellegrini as well, but I think Mancini, Rodgers, Pellegrini, the, you know, Mancini's the best of the lot. Rogers and Pellegrini are about even. That's the class he's in. So he will be fine to get you into that top four mix with the money that'd be behind him. He could potentially win you major honours. Like P- Pellegrini won a leave title at City. Mancini won a couple. But they were always stepping stones to Pep. And maybe you're looking at at Julian Nagelsmann and saying, right, he's the guy we actually want. And maybe Rangnick comes in and thinks, Nagelsmann's who I want. But I'm not going to be able to get him for six years. So I'm going to do six years after this year, I should say. I'm going to do this year and the next two years with... Ralph Hasenhüttl. Then we're gonna go and get a Brendan Rodgers, and Rodgers will do three, four years, get us right up into the mix, and then we go and we get Nagelsmann, and he's our guy. He's the one that we've been building towards. The only issue with it, with it is Rodgers' ego won't allow him to work under a director of football. Uh, he caused chaos at Liverpool by refusing to listen to Michael Edwards. That's ultimately why he failed at the club and, and got himself sacked. Um, he he is of the belief that he's on Manchester City's shortlist. It's very unlikely. No real major success yet. Uh, history of bad ends of seasons. Horrendous European record. And also, there are people that work at Liverpool who came from City, who have very close relationships with City, who did not get home with Brendan Rodgers. So, that will likely have filtered back some of his behaviour behind the scenes, the personality clashes. I think things like that will hamper Brendan. If I'm looking at the big six jobs, the only one he's getting is probably Arsenal. That's probably it. He was linked with the Spurs job in the summer. He turned it down. And, or he, he said he had no interest. Whether he was actually offered it or not, I don't know. There is some history with him. And Daniel Levy, where he's made some comments about Levy in the past that probably didn't sit well. I think Arsenal's his only option of getting a, a, a big six job. And he won't get it if they're a top four club. He'd get it now when they're out of the mix and they want someone to to do what I've suggested he could do for Newcastle, which is build them back up. But if he's able to park his ego and trust in the process, trust in recruitment people, having a much better eye for talent than he does, because his is appalling. Uh, he's the man who brought you your Yannick and Dejan Lovrens and told you they were top-end centre-backs. He's the man who thought Ben Teke was the answer for Liverpool. If he can park his ego, Rodgers can do a great job as a coach, if he can trust in Hasselhutl or sorry in in Ranić to set everything else up, Rodgers in twenty twenty four would be would be the ideal target. Now I wouldn't put any stock into him saying he's committed to Leicester because he's walked out on Watford, on Swansea, and on Celtic. Having said he was committed to those clubs, so I wouldn't put any stock in that. Certainly don't believe he's going to be on any kind of shortlist at City. I think, again, Nagelsmann, Eric Ten Hag will be, has got the pep link. He'll be someone that they'll consider. They'll consider big names as well. They'll consider an Antonio Conte. They'll consider maybe trying to poach Max Allegri. They'll consider Zidane. But uh, I don't see them considering uh, Brendan. I think Newcastle would actually be the best job Brendan could get because of the money. Arsenal's a bigger job, a, a better job in terms of it being Arsenal Football Club, but Newcastle could be an ideal uh, landing spot for him should he choose to be sensible about things. Just be sensible about things and, and accept that Ralph Ranick knows more about football and has a better idea of what a good footballer looks like than you do. Um, right. AMK 2889. What are some records held by footballers that you think will never be broken? And what are some records that footballers hold that they would probably wish they didn't? Such as Richard Dunn's most Premier League own goals. Um... Who's got the most Premier League red cards is is a good one. Duncan Ferguson, Patrick Vieira, and Richard Dunn coming in for the double. Those three all have eight. That'll be a hard one to beat. Eight red cards is just a lot. And if we look at the top ten, Ferguson, Vieira, Dunn, Keane, Cattermole, Andy Cole having six is sensational, considering he never tackled anybody. Nicky Butt, Frank Quadro, Frank Gareth Barry, and, and the legendary Vinny Jones. I, I just don't see anyone getting above that. The most anyone has now is Fernandinho. And I, I just don't see that anyone will, will get to eight or nine. Because the game's not played like that anymore. Um records that won't be broken. Uh, that's, that is a good question. Least goals conceded in the in a Premier League season. I think that's one. That the Chelsea 04 05, 15 goals conceded, That's ludicrous. Ludicrous to concede only fifteen goals. We've seen great defenses not get below twenty. And they got 15. I think Arsenal going unbeaten is going to be really hard to beat. Because we've seen great Chelsea teams, great United teams, great City teams and great Liverpool teams not be able to do it. Liverpool came the closest, only one defeat uh, in seven, in eighteen nineteen. City's 100 points is going to be hard to beat. Again, it, it's doable. It is doable, and again, Liverpool in that that season, if they'd beaten City at the Etihad, which they could easily have done, they'd have finished with hundred points and unbeaten. But to keep your focus for that long, especially considering, you know, the Champions League is is where it's at, and that's what teams want to win. It's very very difficult, so I think those will be hard. Um, I think most red cards. Is one that, you know, Duncan Ferguson and, and Richard Dunn probably wish they don't have. Vieira and Keane, I don't think, will mind. Ferguson maybe not wouldn't mind. But Richard Dunn, I mean, your two Premier League records, eight eight red cards and the most own goals. That that's tough, you know. Um There's a lot of bad records. There's a lot of records that probably won't get touched. Like I'm not sure anyone how far is Kane off Shearer? So Shearer has two hundred and eighty. I sorry, two hundred and sixty. Kane has one six six. I I don't know that Kane will get to two sixty. It's ninety four goals. He's had a, a number of injuries. If he went to City, he could probably do it. At Spurs, I don't know. Harry Kane being subject of a £200 million bid by Newcastle is one of my favourite ideas for next summer. Newcastle just being like, we don't care. Here's £200 million, And here's a million quid a week. Just come and play for us. That's one I find amusing, it would be funny Um, I don't know if anyone will beat Shearer like Rooney got to 208, Rooney was in the league for a long time Aguero got to 184 Aguero was incredible I think Kane will end up second I'm just not sure anyone's going to pass Alan Shearer I think there's a lot of um, individual club records like I don't think anyone's going to ever touch Ian Rush's record for Liverpool. It he's just so far ahead of everybody else. So I think that's one that won't get touched. Um and I think the Cristiano record for most international goals, I think he will hold that not ever. Someone will beat it in 50 years or something but you know, I I just don't think in the next 45, 50 years. I don't think anyone will beat it. I think it's just, it's sensational. Um, KOR99, what's your all-time best Ireland 11? All-time best Ireland 11. Bonner and goal. I'll go Gary Kelly at right back. Steve Staunton at left back. McGrath is obviously one centre-back. I'll go Kevin Moran next to him. Three-man midfield is easy. It's Giles, it's Keane, it's Brady. And up front, Steve Highway, Robbie Keane and Damian Duff. Mark Lawrenson actually over Kevin Moran, isn't it? It is Mark Lawrenson. It has to be. Mark Lawrenson over, over Kevin Moran. So Lawrenson and McGrath at centre-back. Could I move Kevin Moran to right-back? I don't know that he ever played there, but he was a phenomenal athlete. He did play in midfield at times, so he was decent enough on the ball. I'll go Moran at right-back over Gary Kelly. I'll go Staunton at left-back and then Lawrenson and McGrath in the middle. Yeah, my midfield picks itself. Those three and McGrath are the four best Irish players ever. It has to be Duff. It has to be Keane. I think it has to be Highway. It's harsh on a John Aldridge, but I think it has to be those three up front. And the only real competition for Bonner would be Shea Given, and I just think Bonner was a better keeper. Uh, and Jack Charlton's obviously the manager. So I hope that answers that one for you. Um, Chris Colby Assuming players won't retire from their national teams Before the next World Cup Name one player From each of the world's top 10 teams That should have a retirement letter Saved in their draft for the day after Elimination Right, so let's very quickly pull up The FIFA rankings and go from there FIFA World Rankings Uh, at the moment, okay, so uh, Belgium are top. I think Jan Vertongen is the answer there. Brazil are second, and Thiago Silva has to be Thiago Silva. England, it's Jordan Henderson, France, Hugo Lloris, Italy. I mean the obvious answers are Benucci and Chiellini because they're older, but they're they're incredible. So I don't know that you'd want them to retire. They're still phenomenal as they showed in the Euros. Um, Italy's tough. I'll say Chiellini just so he doesn't. Carry on too long and spoil his legacy. Argentina. Nicolas Otamendi. Portugal, Cristiano. Let them be great without you for a change. Spain. Sergio Ramos, if he's in the squad. If he's not, uh, I would say Jordi Alba or Busquets. Busquets. Just retire. Mexico. Mexico. Hmm, don't actually know, to be totally honest. Let's have a look at the current squad. Guillermo Ochoa would be, he's 36 at this point, he will be 37 by the time the World Cup comes around. Him or Andreas Quadrado? Andreas Quadrado has 170 caps. That is very... And he's a midfielder. That's really impressive. I'll go Quadrado then. Um, Denmark. Simon Kjær. The Netherlands. I'll do a few more. The Netherlands. Is he still on the Dutch squad? Uh, For... To Netherlands, I will say, if Stecklenburg is still hanging around at that point, him. If not, Luke de Jong, just eat, just go away. Eight goals in thirty-eight games for the Netherlands. You should be ashamed of yourself. For Uruguay, Diego Godín. The U.S. I don't think he plays for them anymore, but Josie Altador? Don't think he's in the squad, yeah, I don't think he's been in the squad in a while, but Josie Altador, he's still officially not retired from the national team. Um, and I don't think there's anyone else really that I would look at and say they need to go. It's a very young squad, Zardes, maybe it's fairly average. Zardes might be the Might be the one to go with there. Um, The Germans. uh, Manuel Naur probably. like He's still really, really good. Don't get me wrong. But probably will just be about time. Marco Reus is another one. That could maybe consider it. If Mats Hummels is picked. Then he's the answer. But I'll just, I'll say an hour just for the sake of it. Switzerland, Granite jacket. Uh, That's the top 15. So there's 15. You asked for 10. 15. Um, Isaac Gilding. Do you think Rashford and Sancho might have scored their penalties in the final if they had been subbed on just 10 minutes earlier or so? As they recall... Rashford literally only had one touch of the ball before extra time. Sancho didn't have many more than that. Yes, I, I I do think so. I genuinely do believe if they'd been brought on ten minutes earlier and had been able to get into the rhythm of the game, and just get a few touches on the ball, you know, build their confidence up, maybe take a take a shot on or something. I I do think it would have made a difference. Now, what I will say is, I don't think Rashford's penalty was a bad penalty. I mean, he sent the keeper the wrong way. He just hit the post. It's a really good penalty. The the run-up and all that uh, annoys me. I don't like the, the the stutter step, the little small pigeon steps across, but it's not a bad penalty. It's just, I mean, it's, it's six inches. Sancho's is a bad penalty. Sancho's is the penalty of somebody who's come on cold. So for Sancho, I definitely think so. Rashford, yeah, probably a little bit better, but it's still a really good penalty that sends the keeper the wrong way. Uh, De Langster, uh, who wins a World Cup where every single team's all-time 11 are in the same tournament? Maradona and Messi for Argentina, Cruyff and Virgil for the Netherlands. Yeah, that's a good one. That is a good one. Do you know what? I'm going to hold this for tomorrow because I have no prediction show to do tomorrow. So I'll do up... Let me just get a piece of paper to write this on so I remember. I'll do up what I would say are the all-time best... Again, my opinion. All-time best 11s for Argentina... Brazil, France, Germany, Spain, England, the Netherlands. I need one more. Um, Uruguay, two-time winners. I, I don't know any of their old players. They're, they're old, old players from like the 30s and 50s, obviously. But some cracking players in the 90s. Rocoba, Fonseca, etc., etc. Francescoli, Really good team in the 10s. They're one option. Belgium is an option. Portugal is an option. I only want to do eight, otherwise I have to do 16. Um, I will say Uruguay, just for the sake of it, to get another South American team in there. I will do best 11 all-time for each of those, in my view, and then I'll, I'll find a randomizer thing to make a draw online, and uh, we'll go from there. So I'll do that one tomorrow if that's okay. Um. Another question. The heads of the FAI have caught wind of the two-footed podcast. And rightly so. I mean, it is the very best daily Premier League podcast that you'll ever find. Uh, You've been tasked with completely rebuilding the Irish football system from the ground up and successfully creating a self-sustaining nation which qualifies and does reasonably well at every single tournament. You have an unlimited budget and full control over how you want to go about this. How do you go about turning around... This currently depressing football nation <laughs> right i have actually thought about this before and i have a loose idea of how i would get started so there's there's two ways to go about this obviously the irish dysphoria is massive so you're going to want to go on the hunt all around the place and find ireland irish immigrants who have had children in england the US, Canada, Australia and wherever else and find the very best ones and then bribe them. You're probably going to have to bribe them to come and play. Maybe not from America, maybe not from Australia. You know, they might be willing to come and play anyway. The, the English lads, I mean, we saw what happened with Grealish we saw what happened with Rice. You know, if the shinier toy comes along, a lot of them will go that way. But there's definitely a lot of Irish players or ancestral Irish players who I think are just kind of out there and and not really been brought in. I don't think Ireland do a good enough job in that regard. And I I think even the ones they do identify, they just don't do enough to convince them to come and play. Because in part, the national team's not very good. The facilities are fairly poor. You know, the prospects of the team becoming good aren't great. Don't know that anyone wants to come and toil away but like you look at Patrick Bamford he could have 60 Irish caps he might end up with four England caps you know what I mean like you've got to find a way to to make it more enticing to them so the first thing I would do is build a state-of-the-art training center for the Irish senior team and the senior women's team and put that in Dublin or just outside Dublin and use that as, you know, partly a selling point to players who come over for a visit, show them around, show them we've got top-class facilities. That's, that's one thing. But in terms of developing players, I think centralised academies is the best way to go. So Ireland, if you don't know, is split into four provinces. Leinster, Munster, Connacht and Ulster. Ulster also comprises Northern Ireland. Anyone born in Ulster can play for the Republic of Ireland if they choose to do so. Including people born in Northern Ireland. They just have to acquire a, a Republic of Ireland passport. So I would put a development centre, a major development centre in Ulster, probably in Derry. I would put one in Connaught, in Galway, in Munster, in Cork. I would put one in Leinster in Kildare and then I would put a fifth one in Dublin. And what I would do is I would take all the best young players in each of those provinces and have them coming to play at those academies. Now, what you can also do is set them up as schools, as the French did with Clairefontaine, so that the players can move there and live there and go to school there as if it was a boarding school. And also get their footballing education. And then I would have a centralised Irish training centre, probably located in Athlone, smack in the middle of the country, where the best from each of the four provinces at their age group come once a week, maybe, to train with their peers and build from there. But I I think until Ireland put real money into developing kids from the age of 12, 14 upwards which is what England do, England start identifying kids that are going to play in the national system at at like 10 I think that's what Ireland has to do we're not going to have the volume of talent but surely to God we can do better than we have been doing like I get that football is currently the number 3 sport in Ireland rugby is one In, in terms of You know, Gaelic football is one. Gaelic football is number one. Rugby is two. Football is three and hurling is four. A lot of kids got brought, got swept up in the the Irish rugby team doing so well and went in that direction. And the numbers now in youth rugby in Ireland are very, very strong. The numbers in youth football are strong, but there's not the same... Level of coaching, of development. The next step I would do is I would create a training school for coaches. And I would go and hire some of the best semi retired or retired managers and coaches from around the world to come and work there, some full time, some part time. And I would create a factory for coaches. And I would make it incredibly affordable for those coaches to go there. But I would do it in a way similar to what the army does. We train you. You pay us back then on the back end. So you come to us and we develop you as a coach over three years. And then you work in our system for three years after that. After that, you can go and do whatever you want. After that, you're not tied to us. There's no obligation. We will pay you a good wage for those three years. But you are contracted to us for those three years after you've completed a very rigorous three year coaching program where we're going to take you all the way from being able to coach a pub team on a Sunday or an under six game all the way to your pro license. We're going to take you the whole way up. I would get all of the League of Ireland teams on board with this. And place coaches with them as part of the as a work placement, as part of their development. I think that's the only way we can do it is to start literally at the very bottom rung, develop coaches, get young players in, develop them within the system very, very early, make sure they're getting the best coaching. And when I say those man, those coaches will come and work for us for three years, I mean in those development centers. That's where they will go to one of the five. Regional development centres, Leinster, Munster, Connacht, Ulster, or Dublin. You might even need to put two in Dublin because you probably do population-wise. Put Dublin North, Dublin South, and then one in Kildare for the rest of Leinster. Um, Like I said, Cork for Munster, or Tipperary, maybe, whichever. Galway's probably the best spot for Connacht, though I'm sure Mayo people will not agree. And I think I'd go to Derry. For Ulster, um, because it's more central than Belfast. You get Donegal coming across, Calvin Monaghan for Anna, going up, Tyrone, and yeah, I, I think Derry's probably best. Um, So six, six of them, and then that centralised national centre, and that's where we're sending the very best in class. The very best coaches, that's where they're going to go. And when our coaches aren't working at training other coaches, that's where they will work. We might even put that training centre for coaches in at loan with that national setup. And try and find all the best young players and try and convince them to not play hurling, Gaelic football, and rugby. Convince them to focus on football. They can play those games, you know, in their spare time, but if you're coming to be part of our setup. It's football. You're not going to play other sports. Because a lot of kids in this country play all four. A lot of kids. You'd be surprised. Most kids play at least two. And what happens is by the age of 14, 15, a lot of them are burnt out. Because they've been playing both for four and five years at that time. And I know kids have tons of energy. But you do find a lot of kids burn out. I remember as a young rugby player, seeing lads that played Gaelic. Like I played football and rugby until I was no longer allowed to play football. Um, I I remember seeing Gaelic players would come exhausted to rugby matches on a Saturday because they'd had Gaelic training on the Friday. Or if we played Sunday, they might have had a Gaelic match on the Saturday evening. And they'd already be shattered before we take the pitch. And when you're... When you're playing tired, you're more likely to get hurt. So that is basically what I would do. Uh, that's that's my my three pronged approach to kickstarting a good era of. The, the, I don't think we'll ever have a golden era, but you know, you look at Uruguay, you look at Belgium; they've been able to do it. The population of Uruguay, I believe, is less than the population of Ireland. Uh, Uruguay. What is the population of Uruguay? It is 3.474 million. The Republic of Ireland alone, I think, is 4.5. Republic of Ireland, is 5 million, 4.995 million. So 5 million people here. There's about 1.2 million in the north. Um, and I don't know the po- population of Belgium. The populations would not be a strong point of mine. Belgium is 11.6 million. So that, that that is double. So that's neither here nor there. But you look at what Uruguay have been able to do. And you'd wonder why is it we can't do the same. Like, if we have 6 million people that we can call on, including those in the north, surely you can have some success. We've had success in the past, admittedly. We had some good teams under Charlton. And then later years under McCarthy, he had quite a good team. But... We've had 20 years of dross, really, since then. Since 2002 was the last real high point for Irish football. Um, Yeah, but that's what I would do. Scour through the dysphoria, try and bring some of them back. Training centres, regional training centres, but training schools where kids come and live. They get proper education. And when I say proper education, I mean proper education. I mean they get the possibility that they can do, they, they get life skills. This is a tangent, and I, I don't really have anything else to do, so I'm going to go on a tangent here. I think all sc- all kids should learn home economics in school, to leaving cert level or A-level level, because it teaches them life skills, teaches them how to cook for themselves, teaches them how to sew things. There's a lot more to it, obviously. It teaches me how to balance a household budget. But those are things that a lot of kids leave school not knowing how to do and are then thrown out into the real world and don't have a clue how to survive away from their mommy and daddy. So I think home economics should be part of your uh, curriculum the whole way through school. I think kids in the leaving... Now, this won't be relevant to the UK, but in the leaving cert system in Ireland, I think you should be able to tailor your leaving cert to real life stuff so for example if you're going to do your leaving cert but you know that leave by the time you leave your leaving cert you are going to go and become a carpenter or a plumber or an electrician you're going to do go and do a trade we're going to tailor your leaving cert to set you on the best path for that trade you're going to do woodwork you're going to do technical graphics or, or gra- you know tech tech drawing you're going to do maths You're going to do English, obviously, just because, you know, you're going to do home economics. But I'm not going to have you do Irish because you're not going to need it. Trev Downey won't be happy, but that's just how it is. I'm not going to have you do history or geography because you're not going to need them. I want you to have the skills that are going to put you in the best place to have the best life possible. If you're going to go to college and study accountancy, oh, and as part of those, those who want to do a trade, you set up a job placement for them. So one day a week for two years, they are with an apprentice or a a, a tradesman who has been signed off and got his, you know, police clearance and all that. They're going to take them on and they're going to give them the grounding for the first two years, a day a week. And at the end of that, rather than going into first year of an apprenticeship, they would go into second year of that apprenticeship. The apprenticeship can then be cut to three years rather than four. And they'll know going in that they like what they're doing. There's no point in a kid going in to become a carpenter and figuring out in this third year, I don't really want to be a carpenter. Give them that knowledge before they take on apprenticeship. If a kid wants to go and be a teacher, well, then we structure, well, what subjects do you want to teach? And we structure it that way. If you want to be an accountant, okay, you're going to do accountancy, you're going to do economics, you're going to do maths. And we'll fill in a bit of filler here and there to make it a bit of a lighter load on you. But we're going to weight things as well. I think education needs to be more structured towards the paths people want to take in life and not just this, you know, uniform rigmarole where we end up coming out of school with a bunch of things we don't ever use. Ever. And we certainly shouldn't be wasting kids' kids' time with classes that have no benefit to them at all. In any way. That they're not even going to have an exam on. You know. You could use that time far more wisely. But that's what I would look to do. A a revolutionary. School system. In my. thing. Going to get the government on board. Might even get. Might even get a little push. Towards a unified Ireland. So we have the whole thing to go. You know we can take all 6.2 million. Or whatever there is. And go from there. Certain people in the north might not be happy with that, but that's just how it's going to be. I'm in charge. I was just put in charge by the Lang so you've no say in the matter. Um, what is the best and worst matches you've Liverpool matches you've ever attended? Okay, so in terms of the best moment I've experienced at a Liverpool match, Olympiakos at home, the Gerrard goal, no doubt the best match is a good one the best out and out performance hmm there's a few there is a few the worst the worst game i was ever at was the start of the oh seven oh eight season. I'm almost certain it was oh seven oh eight, and Liverpool played Birmingham. It was Liverpool, definitely Birmingham. It was the start of the season, it was like fourth or fifth game in. Yeah, fifth game in two thousand seven two thousand eight season at Anfield. Birmingham come down. Liverpool's last home game, they put six past Derby. And I was expecting more of the same. And they played out the most horrendous nil-nil draw you've ever seen. Dower doesn't begin to cover it. It was absolutely shocking. Genuinely appalling. Olympiacos was the best moment. The best game might have been... Liverpool... What year was that? Was that... I think that was 08 as well. Was that the same season? One second. I need to... Years or not... Yeah, Liverpool-Arsenal, same year. 2008. Same season, rather. 2008. 4-2 at Anfield. On my birthday. I was 26 that day. Um... The 4-2, we were just brilliant. We were absolutely brilliant on the day. And that that's probably the best game I've seen at Anfield. The worst was definitely uh, and, and the best moment was the Olympiakos one. The worst game was definitely that horrendous affair against um against Birmingham. And the probably the worst in terms of We didn't play badly, but how it ended up, Benfica at home, March 06, 2-0 defeat in the uh, Champions League in the round of 16. We were just garbage. We were absolutely garbage on the day. We'd lost 1-0 at home, but we were really confident we could beat them and go through. And if you look at how that Champions League worked out, you do kind of feel like we could have ended up going back-to-back if we'd gotten through. Now, I know Barcelona would win it and they'd a really good team. But we were so poor in that game, in that round of 16. Benfica played Barca next Maybe we wouldn't have gotten past them. But if we had, I think we'd have beaten Milan. I think we'd have beaten Arsenal in the final. It's all subjective, or all here saying all nonsense or whatever you want to call it. But yeah, that that one. That was that's that was awful. That's the worst I've seen Liverpool play. The overall dourness of the Birmingham game will never ever escape me, though. It was just horrible. It was I was so excited for the game. We'd wall up Derby, we had Torres. we come off the back of getting the Champions League fine. Admitted, admittedly, we lost. But, yeah, awful. Absolutely awful. Um, right, I've got a couple more, and then I'm, I'm done. This one is from Mikhail Campbell. Uh, sent via Mr. Drinkle. For the lovers of agriculture, gammon, and gravy football. Which manager should we be watching now that Mr. Tony Pulis is out of a job? Also, what's your best gammon and gravy 11 of current footballers? The, the best gammon and gravy managers are Neil Warnock, Steve Bruce. I will not put Sean Dyche into that company because his teams can play better football. But Bruce and Warnock. So enjoy Steve Bruce while you can. Neil Warnock is still the king of gammon, though. And he looks like a piece of gammon as well. Um, As for gammon and gravy footballers... Do so I just pick the entire Burnley 11 bar Dwight McNeil? Um, Asmir Begovic is a gammon and gravy goalkeeper. Loads of big long punts up the field. Big, big unit, not very agile. Um, Phil Bardsley is definitely the right back. I think Eric Peters might be the left back. Yeah, he probably is. Um, at centre-back, it's not the Burnley duo. I'll go Craig Cathcart and Shane Duffy. They're my two. Uh, in midfield, we'll go four four two of course. Uh, in midfield, Jordan Henderson... James Milner. Milner on the right wing, Henderson in the middle of the park. Um Scott McTominay. There's a bit of gambling and gravy about him. And on the left. Stuart Downing's retired so I can't have him. It's a shame. I'll take Jared Bowen and I'll play him on the left wing, rather than on the right. I'll just make him an old fashioned chalk on the boots, up and down. Get your crosses in, son. Chris Wood up front, and next to him we'll put Begovic. Can't really be gambling gravy. He's a bit too exotic for that, isn't he? We'll go Fraser Forster it's because he's huge, so he'll be the goalkeeper up front with Chris Wood. Has to be has to be an English player or you know a British player. Kiefer Moore, we'll go for Moore. So there's our front two. Chris Wood and for Moore. Bowen and Milner supplying the the crosses. Henderson and McTominay box to box. No defensive presence at all. Just endless running. And then, yeah, that's the back four as well. Bardsley, I can't go Peters, he's too far on. Bardsley... Cathcart, Duffy, Dan Byrne, six foot seven, absolutely Dan Byrne at left back. Yes, indeed, there is. That's a hell of a team. And uh, we have two more from Twitter, so we get them done, and then we're done. Uh, sports lens rumors that Rodgers is in line to replace Guardiola. How do you think he fares at City, and who would you be your be your top three candidates to replace Guardiola, and why? Uh I don't think he'd do very well. I don't think he'd be able to work in their structure. I don't think he'd be able to do what he's told. I just don't think he's good enough to manage City. Um So I think he'd end up getting sacked fairly quickly. Uh Who would be your top three candidates to replace Pep? I do like Eric Ten Hag because I think there's a lot of continuity there. He worked under Pep, so I think he makes sense. Conte would mean a drastic change in approach, but, I mean, he, he's the best manager in the world right now who's out of work. So Conte has to be on the list just from that aspect. The style of football isn't great, but he will win. He will win you titles So I think Conte has to be there. As for a third... Do you know what? Thomas Tuchel. He'll be sacked by Chelsea long before Pep leaves, I think. Um, I'll say Thomas Tuchel. Tuchel, Conte and Eric Ten Hag. That's who I'll go for. Uh, Same chap has another question... What are the five greatest managerial rivalries you've seen in your lifetime and why? Uh, Ferguson-Wenger, because Wenger got inside Ferguson's head very early. Ferguson had never really been challenged the way Wenger challenged him. There was a lot of mutual respect between Ferguson and Doug Leash, who were friends. So even when Liverpool and United battled in the 80s and then Liverpool, uh, United and Blackburn in the 90s, uh, there was no real, there was no dislike between the two. They were, they were rivals, but they weren't. There was no animosity. There was real animosity with Wenger and Ferguson, even though I think there's a lot of respect there. Uh, Wenger and Mourinho, because I think it was outright hatred, certainly from Wenger to Mourinho. Mourinho liked to poke Wenger. I think Wenger, I think Wenger despised him, to be honest. Um, so I would say that uh, Lippi and Capello. Just it's the defining rivalry of the 90s. Fabio Capello with that immense AC Milan team. Lippi with Juventus. Capello obviously would, would leave and go to Real Madrid and then come back and then leave again and go to, um, go to Roma. But I think Lippi and Capello is, is the defining rivalry of the 90s. Guardiola and Mourinho is an obvious one. I think has to be included. It's just... They've been great rivals. And I think Pep and Klopp... Pep and Klopp, I think, has to be one. I think it has to be in there as, as number, number five, number one, whatever way you want to put it. I'm not putting any of them in order. I think it's just... It's the fifth one. The rivalry I need in my life, and that hasn't happened yet, the one I need more than anything... Is Antonio Conte and Diego Simeone? I need those two in the same league for five years at good clubs that are equally matched, and I just need them going head to head. If I can have them in the same city, even better. If I could have Conte and at Real, Real and Atleti aren't really you know evenly matched because Real have so much more money and clout, but. C- Conte-Simeone is the rivalry I need and there was rumours a couple of years ago that Simeone was going to go to it- to Italy um, and manage Lazio at the time because Sim- uh, In- Inzaghi was been linked to the move away um, before he went to Inter and I thought right Conte would enter uh, Simeone with Lazio Simeone would build Lazio up. that will be great Then there was talk that, even before that, that Simeone would take the Inter job and Conte would go back to Juventus. That's the one I was really excited about because I thought, right, that'll be magnificent. There was actually rumours for a while that Conte was going to go to AC Milan and Simeone to Inter Milan, and that would have topped all. Same city, same stadium. Two teams that have been about equal building at the same time. That would have been great. Simeone in the blue and white. Conte in the red and white. That's the rivalry I need. But the five I'd go for. Lippi Capello. Ferguson Wenger. F- F- uh, Wenger Mourinho. Pep and Mourinho. Pep and Klopp. That's my five. And that's me for today. Longer pod than planned. But you know it is what it is. I will talk to you all tomorrow. Uh, I will do that World Cup. All time thing tomorrow, among other things, um, just to fill the hour. And uh, yeah, speak to you then. Bye bye. Podcast Network.